0: Good morning, church. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, Just a joy to be with God's people. We've already prayed in my office, quite a few of us, and just uh, really, really good to be with you. We're going to dive right uh, into the Word in in just a moment today, but for those of you that are visiting or haven't been here uh, the last couple Sundays, let me just kind of give you a refresher of of what's been going on so we don't just dive in and you're like, well, where are we here? So let me just kind of set, uh, set the stage, as it were, and, and we want to use our imaginations. So we want to go back in time to about 1000 BC is what we're going to be reading, and isn't it interesting that something we're reading from 1000 BC, now I wasn't a math major, but that's like 3,000 years ago, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's a long time ago. But the Bible tells us that all scripture is God breathed. And so even this passage from 1000 BC is relevant to our lives. And what's going on here is there's the first king in Israel. His name is Saul. And Saul hasn't really been eager to be king. Those of you here the last weeks, you'll remember there's like an inauguration ceremony that's about to happen, and Saul is hiding among the baggage not exactly ready to lead at that point. And then very shortly after he is inaugurated as king, uh, a superpower, the Ammonites, with their leader Nahash, whose name means serpent, uh, sought to dominate them and to take out every soldier physically and, and to dominate and oppress violently Israel. And as this happens... The king, Saul, is not on his throne reigning and ready to call the troops to arms to defend his people. He's out in the field with oxen. The king. The king is out in the field and all the people know what's going on, that there's this threat of oppression and he doesn't have any idea what's going on. And then for those of you who were here last week, we saw that there was a transformation in Saul as a leader. And it didn't happen because, of, because he went to West Point or the Naval Academy or because of his training or, or, or because of his study of the Scriptures. It wasn't because of any of those things. But it was because of the power of what? Those of you that were here. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he became this leader and he unified the nation. And he called the troops to battle. And this superpower that was threatening them... They take them out. And so as we approach today's text, we're looking at a unified country around a leader that everyone is looking to. Like, this is the guy. This is our king. We are for him. And so that's the background. That's where we're at. Let's take a look at our Bibles. Hopefully, if your Bibles open, 1 Samuel 11, we're at the end of that chapter. We're going to start today. We're going to find five truths that I'm going to highlight in this unit. And the first truth comes out of verses 12 through 13. So this, is all, this battle has just been won. This is a great day in Israel. Verse 12, the people then said to Samuel, Samuel's the judge, and we're transitioning from Samuel to the king, to a monarchy, to Saul. So the people said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us, and we will put them to death. A brief pause here, those of you who haven't been with us, so after he's anointed, there's some people who are like, yeah, this is our guy, we're with him, there's a group of of mighty men that follow him, but then there's another group, and that group seems, their their ethos spreads throughout all the nation, and their ethos is, this guy ain't going to save us, we're not for him. So now that the country's unified, they're remembering who were the leaders of those who were against Saul being our king. Bring them before us, and we're going to put them to death. And look at Saul's response, verse 13. But Saul said, no one shall be put to death today. For this day, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, rescued Israel. It wasn't because they were a superpower. It wasn't because of his military prowess and wisdom. In military strategy, it was because of the power of God, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And so he says, Yahweh, the Lord, has rescued Israel, so no one's going to be put to death today. So how does this relate to our lives here? So what has happened with these guys who betrayed, who didn't want to follow Saul, the the king, what was betrayal was treason, and they could have been punished in a variety of ways, including hanging or stoning, stoning to death. But Saul's response, and and these unfortunately are Saul's brightest days. I mean, fortunately that these are bright, but those of you that know Saul's life, it doesn't stay like this. But at this point, he is this stellar, godly leader. And he says, no, we're we're not going to have a trial and execute these folks for treason, even though they deserve that. He shows them mercy. He shows them mercy, and he unites this people in showing mercy to those who deserved some sort of punishment for not showing allegiance to the king and the unity of the people. So this relates to our lives, even though you and I are not commanders in chiefs of armies or What not? We're not in that kind of position, any of us here. Yet, as believers, we have this in common with this text describing Samuel, describing Saul. We are followers of this covenant-keeping God. And like them, we have enemies. We have those who oppose Jesus and the gospel and an eternal mindset. Anybody interact with people this week who are opposed to the bible being the word of god they describe us maybe as religious or as weirdos or other words that i won't repeat that they may think of us as we we have enemies different enemies but we have enemies what we can see from this text and what jesus talks to us about as well is of the value and the importance of showing mercy to enemies especially when those enemies are out f- for us. And that was the case for these guys against Saul. Look at what Jesus says in, in Matthew 9. He gets, uh, he, he's going to talk about showing mercy here in a moment. But look at it with me on the screen, Matthew 9. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, again, this is, you know, in the 1st century, so we're talking 2000 years ago, and we still need a little background here to get the gist of what's going on here. Tax collectors in the 1st century were kind of like the mafia that had federal government jobs. They were not good people. They were corrupt, but they had the protection of the state on their side, the Romans. So they were like the mafia, but they were unlike the mafia, that they were sanctioned by the state and they had authority. Jesus is eating with the federal employees that have a great retirement program, but they are mafia, they are corrupt, and they will squeeze you, they will squeeze you to get what they want. This is who Jesus is eating dinner with, and he's eating dinner with sinners. A variety of ways we can contextualize that today. He, he's, he's eating with people that have uh, felonies on their record, people who have spent time in prison or should be in prison. This is who he's eating with, Jesus. So uh, they're, they're there, and uh, while they're having dinner, uh, they, 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 he's eating with, with, all the, with all these folks. Let's come back to the text here. When the Pharisees saw this, so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the pastors of the day, if you will, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, What is this? This is, this is messed up. And not only is it messed up, we don't hang out with people like this, but you actually could be ceremonially disqualified from coming into the temple and worshiping by hanging out with some of these people. And so there's a double element here, like we just don't hang out with people with these, and you actually could jeopardize your entrance ticket to the temple by eating with them. On hearing this, here's Jesus' response. So he overhears it. They didn't say it to him, but he hears it. You know, so the word gets to him. This is what they're saying, the pastors. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. So he's giving them an assignment. Go and learn what this means, and he quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God the Father Desires mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus desires mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What he is giving them an assignment is to go home and open their Bibles. And this is kind of a shocking sentence, and it's probably not shocking to you or to me, but it would have been shocking to a Pharisee for Jesus to highlight this phrase from their Bible I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Why is he highlighting that phrase? Because the Pharisees, the pastors of the day, have a tendency to overemphasize the importance of getting your ticket into temple worship and offering your sacrifice. Was that important? Yes, it was. The Bible commanded it. And the Pharisees knew that. But what the Pharisees missed is on your way to worship, if there's someone desperate, even a tax collector, a mafia, good retirement, employee plan, mafia guy who's, who needs mercy on the way, that that is your priority. That guy. That's what he's saying here. Mercy is huge in the life of the Christian. This is what Jesus is emphasizing in Matthew And this is what we see in 1 Samuel 11 of a leader who has been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. In the flesh, he he would have said, yeah, bring those guys here. Get the stones or get the guillotine or get the gallows or however they were going to do it. Get those guys here that were opposed to me and let's serve them justice. That's how I would respond in the flesh. Maybe that's how you would respond in the flesh. But Saul responds, no one shall be put to death today. For this day, for this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. This is a day to celebrate. So these couple verses are showing us the importance of showing mercy to our enemies, not with an eager desire and rush to bring justice to them, especially when they deserve that justice. That's what we have here. And we see who Jesus spent his time with. This is a lot. We could do the whole sermon on these first two verses, but I got a few more verses to cover. So you guys ready to move? All right. Say yes. Say yes. Okay, so here we go. So that's 12 and 13. Let's come back to the text. um, Verses 14 and 15. So Samuel says to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. So we have like a third ceremony here. Those of you have been here, we've had the private anointing. We had like a public inauguration. Now we have a united nation. We have a, a united, not the united nations, but the united nation of Israel, the people of God. And so it says there they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. They had a party. They had a celebration. Relevance here to our lives. We ought to regularly celebrate and party for spiritual accomplishments and great things that God has done. I mean, this was a divided nation with a king who's hiding in the baggage, a king who's out in the field farming, doesn't even know what's going on in the nation. He has been anointed by the Spirit. They've defeated the superpower. Let's have a party. Parties are good. In fact, my voice is a little bit, I don't know if you can hear it, but my voice is a little scratchy. We were up late last night partying at a wedding celebration. I was dancing with my wife. I was dancing with my nephew Carter, who's about this tall. Oh my gosh, this little boy. Uh, he partied better than all of us. Like, I don't know how this kid w- w- was, uh, he was just on the dance floor and happy and didn't need to go to sleep. I, I don't know. I want one of those. I didn't have a lot of that um, when ours were little for hours and hours, just full of joy and running around and being passed from uncle to aunt to grandpa to, to the bride, the groom, just, just little, he's just happy with, with everybody. Um, but I was especially happy when he, when he was in my arms and dancing dancing with me. All right, I'm getting off point here, but I'm not really. We're called to celebrate. We're called to party as believers in God. Now, the world parties as well, so it's pretty common. that We don't have the exclusive domain on partying at weddings and birthdays. That's a common thing to do. So what I want us to think about out of these couple of verses is what spiritual occasions might we have a great celebration and party in your home or in our church or in your small group or with your friend who's a believer. I'm suggesting that you look for spiritual reasons to celebrate and, and to party. One man uh, describing um, what he was after in his home with his children and, and celebrating and partying, he, he writes this, C.J. Mahaney, Mahaney's book Humility. He says, we break out into real celebration around my house Only when there's a demonstration of humility, servanthood, or godly character. So I'm putting this up here not saying that we shouldn't celebrate birthdays, and we shouldn't celebrate graduations, and we shouldn't have parties at all of these occasions. We should. But we also need to have joyous celebrations and parties when God does significant things in our lives, in our kids' lives, in our parents' lives, in our friends' lives, in our small group members' lives. So that's verses 14 and 15. Celebrate his work in your life, in the lives of others. This is, we see this throughout the scriptures. We see all kinds of different ways to do it and examples. And I, I for one, am, am for us getting better and having more frequent parties and celebration. Uh, baptisms are, are, are days where we, we celebrate what God has done. Uh, the Lord's Supper, which is going to happen later in the service, sometimes and in, in rightfully a um, a. a moderate tone or a, what's the word a sober tone a reflective tone we want to search our hearts but it's also a time to to rejoice and to smile and, and to party for what Jesus has done for us literally historically on the cross some 2,000 years ago okay I got to pick it up so that's verses 14 and 15 let's jump into t- chapter 12 now and look at verses 1 through 5 so we're, we're shifting a little bit to Samuel So Samuel, the last judge of Israel, we're basically at this transition point from from judgeship to monarchy, from Samuel being the leader of Israel to to Saul, the the king. So Samuel's near the end of his ministry, and here's what he does in in verse one. He says, says to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me, and I've set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray. And my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth. Remember that? If we go back many months or a few months. Uh, God chose him from, from, from when? From before he was born. From his youth until this day. Verse 3. Here I stand. Famous words that are more associated with Martin Luther in the 1500s than they are with 1 Samuel 12. But this is, this is older, right? This is the original here. Here I stand. Samuel says. Now he says to the gathered Israel, the gathered people of God, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed, the king. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. Here's a man near the end of his ministry, near the end of his life, saying, hey, have I blown it? If I have, I want to hear about that right now, and I want to make it right. Look at the response, verse 4, from the people. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day. So the the people are a witness, the king is a witness, God is a witness, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. So That this is kind of formal language for this man. This, this is what a, a, a judge's retirement party looks like. He is wanting to confirm that he has been above reproach in all that he has done. And for those who know the course of what's going to hap- happen in 1 Samuel, and that Saul is not exactly going to live the kind of life that Samuel has lived. He's also, in a prophetic way, drawing attention uh, to that. If we want to put a word on verses one through five, it's really of chapter 12, it's really integrity. It's integrity. And Samuel is testifying publicly, and the people are testifying in his presence that he has led with a man as a man of integrity. Now Samuel has warned the people back in chapter 8 that this king that they want is not going to do that. Look at it with me on the screen, First Samuel 8. He's prophesying here in First Samuel 8 about what's going to happen with this king once he gets installed that you want. He says, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Um, this, is, this is mafia-like, like, uh, like the tax collectors in the first century. Your men, servants, and maidservants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take. He's saying to Israel, the king is going to take your best things for his own personal use. This is not how Samuel led. This is an incredibly common way for leaders To lead, whether we're in 1000 BC or whether we are in 2022, they get a hold of power and they use it to advantage themselves and those that are close to them rather than caring for the people. But this is not how Samuel led as judge. Samuel led with integrity. Jesus speaks about. This again he doesn't use the word integrity, but he speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five. But I tell you, Jesus said, Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is, is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So Again, we're not maybe familiar with this culture, but they had a very sophisticated culture about oaths and swearing. And it gotten very convoluted and complicated. Like, when is this bro telling me the truth? When is he, you know, he's got to swear in this certain certain way. You know, we kind of did this as kids, right? What is it? Cross your, what is it? Yeah, yeah, and you have your fingers behind your back. You know? So same thing, same thing was going on but with oaths in a, in a sophisticated way. Jesus is pretty clear here. You see those first words, do not swear at all. So he, he's changed the law, if you will. That's why we call it an old covenant and a new covenant. In the old covenant, there's, it's, it's detailed out how you're supposed to swear. He's saying, do not swear at all. And then he finishes here for what we're going to look at today. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Men and women, whether we are leaders or not, if we are followers of Christ, he calls for us to be men and women of integrity. So when he says your yes, yes, and your no, no, to paraphrase here, he's saying that you live in such a way as a Christ follower, that if if you say, hey, I'll meet you there at noon, I'll meet you at Missions Coffee at noon, that you're going to be there at noon. Now, are you perfect? No. You might get a flat tire or something, but generally you are known as a man or a woman who says, "Yeah, when I say I'll meet you there at noon, I'm going to be there at noon. When I say this, act- this happened, it actually happened. We, we don't have to play games and, and, and oaths and cross fingers or, or whatever. Say a little, little real. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is what's going on in First Samuel 12 with Samuel's retirement party. This is what's going on. And it's a change from the Old Covenant. Look at Deuteronomy 6. You shall fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. So Old Covenant, you swear by his name. The New Covenant, no, we we, we live lives of integrity and we don't swear at all, according to Matthew 5. So as we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's some things where there's continuity and they they just come forward. And there's some things that are that Jesus reverses, things that Jesus changes in the New Covenant. And that's what we have here. So our third truth out of this text today is that biblical leadership does not abuse power, which is so common in the church, in the state, in, in government, in all realms, power corrupts many. Biblical leadership does not abuse power, but it leads with integrity and A Christian life, whether they're a leader or not, is a life that is led by integrity. So that's verses uh, 1 to 5. Let's uh, take a look at 6 through 11. All right? 6 through 11. And we'll pick up the pace here a little bit. So Samuel uh, in 6 says to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron. And brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. So this is, if you will, his retirement speech. He actually has quite a bit more to do, but he's like, given it somewhat early in his life here. So he's given this, this sermon. Verse 7. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to, as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. So this is a contrast from the king that you've asked for. What God has done as your king. Verse 8, after Jacob entered Egypt, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Verse 9, but they forgot. And I've got that word forgot circled. But they forgot the Lord their God. He sold them, and I have that word sold, circled. He sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out, and I've circled that. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. These were their idols. Again, we're maybe not familiar with the Baals and the Ashtoreths, but we're familiar how we get excessively attached to things in the place of God. And they were excessively attached to these false gods, Baal, the God who would deliver rain. And so when it was drought season... There would be temptation to worship Baal because he's the God of rain and thunder and, and we want him to bring rain on our crops, Israel, because we're not getting any. And this is the kind of thing that they did when they, when they, force, when, when they forgot about the Lord and they served him, then they would cry out. They would have a real realization that, they have, that their faith has gone away and they say, now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Verse 11, then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, Baal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. And he delivered you. God delivered you, often through human beings. That's who's mentioned here, from the hands of your enemies on every side, so that you lived securely. Now very quickly, I want you to see this pattern that is here for Israel. Those words that I mentioned I circled. They forgot. They forgot the Lord. Um, He sold. He gave them over. What often happens is we forget the Lord. We have something else that we're after that has taken his place. We usually don't think of that thing as an idol. It could be your job. It could be a relationship. It could be money. It could be affluence or power or esteem. They're often good things. Sometimes they're evil things. I mean, it could be an evil thing like ba'al, a false god, or it could be cocaine or whatever it is. So if it's an evil thing, we need to repent of that and just get away from it. But more often, our idols are good things that that take God's place, and we actually need to put them back where they belong, not not necessarily get rid of them and have Jesus on his throne. And so when this happens, when we are are serving our our job and our job becomes our our money or our personal security becomes our idol— God often gives us over to that. That's what is being described here. Is he sold. He, he, gave them, he gave Israel back over to these people of the God that they, they were worshiping. We see this in the New Covenant, in the New Testament as well, Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful hearts, in, in the sin, gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. This is what's most common. I mean, occasionally people say, oh, I couldn't come to church. God's going to zap me with a lightning bolt. That doesn't happen very often. He's actually given you over. He's given you over. That's how he operates normally. Uh, occasionally, there's a lightning bolt in Scripture and someone gets zapped and taken out. That is the exception. The norm, he gives you over. And, and this happens to us as well. In his uh, book, we become, uh, we become What We Worship, Jake. G.K. Beale, he writes this. He says, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. If you put fame and money and power and esteem as your God, if that's what's driving your life, if that's what you're all about, that's going to ruin you. If you put the covenant-keeping God of Israel, who wants us to love him and love our neighbors, then, then you're going to be restored, is, is, is what he's saying. He goes on. He says, The media's worldview has suddenly become an idol we easily reflect. And it's not just the the emphasis here isn't on the media. This is the world all around us. The media's worldview has suddenly become an idol we easily reflect. And that mindset, here's the mindset, that God is not active in the daily affairs of his people. That's a figment of our imagination. This is what not just the media, but secular academics, what, what, what most of the world w- would say to us. God's not active in the daily affairs of people. So that false ideology and idol can destroy us. How does it destroy us? It destroys us because we think, I'm in charge. God's not involved. Uh, uh, that's whatever. But he's not involved. So it's all me. So what is that person's idol? That person's idol is self and you're going to come to resemble whatever it is that you worship. What we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. So, again, many of our idols, as followers of Christ, most of our idols are good things. I, I, I'm putting on the screen here a, a mountain bike t-shirt. And interestingly, I, you know, spiritually, this would be a good, good conversation. It's like a skull and crossbones motif. Like idolatry. Like death. That's like, I don't know, that people think that's cool or whatever. I don't, I'm not saying that they had a biblical mindset when they, when they wrote this. And it has the phrase single-track mind uh, underneath it. Kind of a play, you know. Single tracks are the trails mountain bikers want to be on. The reality is, if you live your life for mountain biking, you're going to become to reflect all things mountain biking. And, and your life is, is given over to, to that thing. And other people can actually see that. People that aren't mountain bikers can see that like, your whole life revolves around trying to get out on the trail. Mountain biking is a good thing, amen? But if you are excessively attached to it, it's death. It will literally kill you spiritually. And that's true about every good thing. The idea that salvation is waking up in my home on the west shore of Lake Tahoe and going for a paddleboard early in the morning when the water's glass and then going for a mountain bike ride every day, and then having my affogato in the afternoon as the sun sets, that sounds good. If you actually did that every day, you would die spiritually, if that's what you lived for, because you are designed for something greater than than that. You might have guessed those are things that I like. Those are things that, I'm, that I enjoy. And I should enjoy them. But if I live for them, they will kill me. Because we're not meant to live for anything other than the one who made us. So whatever you put in the place, whatever good thing it is, you're going to die. Back to our text. I'm trying to... I'm trying to preach here and trying to give you what this text is saying. And it's saying that the nation of Israel, they forgot about Yahweh. He sold them out to whoever they went after, whatever their idol was. Then after some time, they realize that Lake, Tauf- Lake Tahoe and Afogados don't satisfy. Baal doesn't satisfy. And so then they cry out. They, they, they repent. And the good news of the gospel, which is in the Old Testament as well, in a, in a not as clear way, is that God rescues them. That is the sweet ending to this story. He doesn't say, yeah, you blew it. Yeah, you, you, you went after the Baals and you went after all of this stuff. So now you're out. No, he sends them a deliverer and that deliverer rescues them. This is a four-stage spiritual cycle that, guess what, is common in every believer's life. And it's common for the nation of Israel 3,000 years ago. So number four, and we'll finish up with five here very briefly. Number f- the four, fourth of fifth truths today is that Christ followers increasingly repent and are rescued. In case you're confused there, back to this. What Christian maturity looks like Can I use this as a pointer? What Christian maturity looks like. Sorry. Are you guys going to be singing with those? So, this is an occasion for repentance, but I have all of your attention now. So, Um, this is what Christian maturity looks like that we very quickly cry out because we all go astray. I go astray. So what maturity looks like is this cycle trending toward crying out and being delivered really quickly so that when I start to go toward my idol over here, my, my money, my personal security, this, this fantasy retirement life or whatever it is, once I become, that, that, that I quickly realize that instead of, instead of being sold out to it, and God giving me over to it, that I cry out and he delivers us because he is a gracious God and a merciful God, extending it to generation after generation, thousands. That's who he is. So Christ followers increasingly repent and are rescued. I'm talking about stages three and four here. All right, I need to finish up. So let's jump to um, to verse 20 and we're going to finish up here. So Samuel's finishing up. He says, do not be afraid. this, this This is really good news. This is truth. You have done all this evil. So you can insert your name there. Mike, you have done all of this evil. If you're confused by what I'm saying, Jesus teaches that if you lust in your heart or you covet in your heart, that that's a sin. You've done it. So we've all done it. We're all, we've all done evil. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. So the reality is we've blown it, but God's there waiting. Turn to him. Verse 21, do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. Baal did not rescue them in 1000 BC, and a home on the west shore is not going to rescue me. It is the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the gospel that rescues me. The greatest treasure, the greatest joy I can have is by living my life for Jesus, whether it's on the west shore, whether it's in New York, whether it's in Auburn. That isn't what's going to make the difference, but it's being surrendered to the covenant-keeping, gracious God of Israel and his son, our Lord Jesus. Verse 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. If, If you didn't get anything else today, get this. Simultaneously, Israel, you have done all this evil and he has made you his own. He loves you. Turn to him. Verse 23, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. Verse 24, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. That's our fifth and final truth. Fear the Lord and serve him with all you've got. That's the end of his sermon at his retirement party for Samuel which sounds a lot like, has a lot of overlap with Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? And he quotes the Old Testament, so the NASB puts it in all capitals. I didn't do that. They did that. So this is is from the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is how he finishes. This is our fifth and final truth. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to live out these truths from 3,000 years ago that are incredibly relevant to our lives today. Father, Lord, we so easily, like Israel, go astray and try to find our security and our hope and our joy in things that don't satisfy, things that are not you. We acknowledge you as all-powerful, all-loving, so loving Father, you sent your son to die in our place in history 2,000 years ago on a cross. He rose on the third day, and he's given us a mission to make disciples, and he's given us a life to live where we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to do that, God. Help us to minimize the, the cycle and to very quickly move to the place of acknowledging you and repenting and being rescued by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.